You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Just reminded as we were worshiping, um, man, I guess it's not too far from a year ago that, uh, that this happened the first time. And we had to shut down. We had no idea what was coming. And we went full virtual at that time and uh, said no idea what God was doing. Um, it was a strange season of staring into a camera, wondering, is anyone watching? Um, and uh, the Lord is faithful. As, as, as we read earlier in Psalm uh, 46, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord uh, continues to build his church and, uh, and so when we um, were able to open up in the summer, we had no idea um, what, what to expect, what that would look like. We were meeting still in the, the cadet hall, and uh, I think we had a couple Sundays there of a handful of people spread out, uh, and by God's providence, um, we were able to move here. Uh, again, as elders going, do we need to move now? Do we have people to fill this space, but we got to spread out and do those things, so let's go for it. Uh, and the Lord filled this place. Um, those were glorious Sundays, um, and, uh, and what an amazing thing to see Christ's promise built, uh, worked out that he will build his church. Uh, and, and this is no different, church. Um, this too shall pass. This won't be forever. Um, and so we're willing to wrestle through this for a season, and the Lord is faithful. He'll continue to be at work. So let's trust him in that uh, and continue to sing his praise. Um, kids, um, you should have the fill-in. Did my kids get the fill-in? They're at the back. Gid, go grab some for your siblings. Um, you guys can fill that out, I hope. I'm going to put the parents at home on the spot. Um, if you have one at home, kids, your, your mom or dad is going to have some kind of treat for you if you fill it out. Um, and uh, if you kids are here, I have a treat for you. Um, and so uh, fill that out. Hopefully that'll help you kind of follow along and be able to, um, to track with me. Um, grown-ups and kids, if you can read, get your Bible out. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, there should be one in the pew with you or esv.org. Just became your new best friend. Crack it open. Um, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, we're going to look uh, at verses 18 to 20. Um, I said last week as we l- looked at this, um, Verses 15 to 20 are really kind of one cohesive unit. Um, there is uh, just more packed into it than we can really look at in, uh, in one sermon. And uh, to be fair, um, I was chatting with Peter about this at small group last week. I think we could do months and months in these verses diving into the riches of, of who Christ is um, But we do want to continue to make our way through the book of Colossians. Um, We we don't want to just inspect two by fours. Eventually we want to see the house. And so uh, we need to keep going. Two sermons will have to suffice for the time being. And uh, and what we're looking at is often called a hymn. Though maybe not a hymn in the way that you're used to thinking about it. Um, Not necessarily written to be sung. 
Um, but, but it's this carefully crafted, um, concisely worded theological statement of worship. That's what we're looking at. Uh, we saw last week the, the focus is on the nature of Christ. It's answering the question, who is Jesus? That's so essential for the church in Colossae as they're kind of getting harassed by this false teaching that's plaguing them. And, uh, and Paul is just setting this foundation stone in place. This is who Jesus is. And he makes three different statements. Uh, as I mentioned again last week, three statements from three different points of reference. Who is Jesus uh, in reference to God the Father? And the answer is, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is, in fact, God himself in flesh. Secondly, he showed who Jesus is in relation to creation. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And if that phrase confuses you a bit, makes you a little uncomfortable, I'd encourage you, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, go back. Um, I think there's some really helpful ways to understand that. Um, firstborn uh, isn't speaking about the fact that he was created, or the, the assumption that he was created or firstborn. That's not it. Uh, he was not. He, he was with the Father in the beginning. Um, it's a title. It's a title of honor, a title of authority. He is the heir of all of creation. He is the, the representative of the Father. And, and, and we see that. Paul unpacks that statement, firstborn uh, of all creation. And he explains that by that he means that Jesus created all things. Mind-blowing. Genesis 1. God spoke and there was light. It was Jesus who brought that into action. All things were created for Jesus. It's all, it's all moving toward him. It's all for his glory. And all things hold together in Jesus. And so he is highly exalted. He is himself the image of God. He is this authoritative firstborn out of or over top of creation. And today we're going to look at this third statement. And the question is, who is Jesus in relation to the church? Now, Last week, used the illustration of, uh, of putting together Ikea furniture and how if you get one piece wrong at the beginning, um, everything else is going to be wrong. It's going to be a mess. It's not going to work out. Things aren't going to fit. And if you get Jesus wrong, if you don't understand him as the foundation piece and who he is, um, everything else is going to go wrong. You're not living with the truth, and it's going to be a problem. Well, we can stick with that metaphor a little bit, um, but Paul shifts here uh, in these verses from looking at the, the incarnation and the creation, and we looked at last week, to looking at the church this week. Um, he shifts from, from past tense to future tense. And so our illustration has to shift a little bit. Rather than seeing Jesus as kind of that crucial piece that you have to get in the, in the right place from the beginning, these verses point to Jesus more like the picture on the box, right? More like the, this is what the finished product ought to look like. This is where it's going. When it's all said and done, this is what we're after. And so if you, if you bought a, an Ikea bed and you're putting that together, looking at a picture of an Ikea shelf, and you're trying to make it look like that, you're going to get it wrong. It's not going to work. It's going to be a mess. Pieces won't fit. Um, Jesus is that foundation piece that we have to get right, um, but he's also the goal. He's also the, the picture on the box. He's what we're moving toward. This is what it ought to look like when all is said and done. 
And so if we're going to understand our lives, our world, uh, eternity, and where we fit and how we ought to live, we need to understand where is this going? We need to understand uh, the end goal. What will this all look like when all the pieces are in place and everything is said and done and the dust is settled? What will be left? And that's very much what Paul is getting at in these last three verses. So um, stick with me and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll help you see that as we go. I want to read this passage for us fresh. I'm going to start back in verse 15 and get the whole thing. Um, but uh, um, yeah, we're just going to focus on verses 18 through 20. Uh, so um, let me read it for us. Starting verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers' authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the end of, sorry, He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if you look carefully, we see these three kind of major headings. Um, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Again, in verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And verses 16 and 7 kind of unpack that statement, what he means by that. And then verse 18 is the third one. He is the head of the body, the church. That's point three in this passage. It's going to be point one for us today. Um, Jesus is the head of the church. And everything else we look at is going to kind of fall underneath that. Um, Paul uses this familiar metaphor uh, for the church, it's a body. But this time, the, the emphasis is a bit different. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, um, that we're kind of most familiar with, his point there uh, is that the church is a body with many parts. And, and how each part has a role to play and they uh, are connected, we need each other. Um, but here, his point is that um, the body has one head. And this concept of Jesus as the head of the church, has, has two kind of predominant meanings, two implications. Um, the first is the head is the source of the body. It's the source. Kids, I'm trying to find short words for you to fill in there. Um, and what I mean by that is that the body gets its strength. It gets its life. It, 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 it draws its existence from Christ. So as we look forward um, to Colossians 2, 19, um, Paul continues to, to talk about, Paul speaks about the head um, that way. Uh, he is the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so the life of the body flows down from the head. The church gets its life, gets its strength, its growth through Jesus. But there's another meaning of the head, and the one I think is more in focus here in this passage, and that is that the head leads the body. The head leads the body. I don't know about you, but my body doesn't go anywhere unless the head tells it to, unless my head instructs it. My, my arms don't lift unless they're told to, and if they're not told to, they don't. 
The head does the thinking. The head gives the directions. The head makes the commands. Notice this phrase in verse 18. I think it parallels uh, the statement about Jesus being over creation. He's the firstborn over creation. He is ruler over creation. And he is the head of the church. He rules over the church. Jesus is the authority over the church. Now, when we talk about the church, you kind of need to think of two realities at the same time, right? There is the church, the kind of capital C church, which is the body of Christ. And, and it's the, that church that spans across around the world, across history. Um, every single believer, whoever was, ever will be, is part of that church, that body of Christ. That's often referred to as the, the universal church. And so in that sense, um, there is only one church, one body of Christ. But, but at the same time, um, there are countless local churches who fit under that umbrella of the universal church. There are these local churches, this kind of visible, tangible expression of the universal church. And, and so we have Redemption Church, and we have First Baptist Church, and we have Garrington Church. Um, we are all individual churches and part of that one single universal church. And just as the church, the universal church, has one head who is Christ, so also we believe the Bible teaches that every local church, the head is Christ. Now, we believe the Bible teaches that every local church ought to be led by elders. And, and we see that through Acts and through the epistles. Um, godly men who are appointed to be overseers, teachers, protectors, um, authority figures in the church. But think of it this way, this, this beautiful picture uh, in First Peter. Um, a, 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 a beautiful passage about eldership, one that, that hangs on my wall in my office. First um, Peter 5, 2-4. Um, listen to what Peter says to the elders at the church. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So there's the job description of the elders. They are shepherds, and they're to exercise oversight, caring for the church. And here's how they're to do it. This is the, the heart that they're to do it with. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now listen to this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so the elders are called shepherds of the flock. They're given responsibility. They are given authority in the church to, to feed and, and teach and direct and protect. Um, they are to shepherd, but they are not ultimate. They are under shepherds. There is a chief shepherd to whom they must answer. Christ is the single glorious head of the church. Um, elders are just his representatives. Now, um, maybe you're wondering where do pastors fit in? Um, Pastors are elders. I'm, I'm one of the elders. I'm just the elder who happens to uh, be blessed to be supported by the church to give myself to preaching the word. But uh, I'm just one of the elders. So elders are shepherds of the flock under um, the chief shepherd. It's ruled by Christ. And, and we live that out. We, we make that a reality as we operate as elders according to his word. Submitting in everything we do. 
Every position we take, every teaching that we believe, every, everything we do is ruled by Christ through his word. And so why do we do what we do? What is our authority? Why do we make the decisions that we make? What drives us? What informs us? Um, it's not the Pope. It's not some other council of churches that tells us how to operate. It's not any individual pastor or teacher, not even John MacArthur, I'm sorry. No tradition. It's not about the way we've always done it. Our only authority is Jesus Christ by his word. So church, we need to, we need to feel this, what it means to be the church. We're a body. And we are spiritually connected to one another. There are, there are spiritual blood vessels running between us. There are spiritual ligaments that, that hold us together. We have different roles to play, different gifts and abilities, strengths and, and weaknesses, but we are connected and we are connected in Christ. That's what binds us together. That ought to deeply affect the way that we see one another the way that we speak to one another, the way that we, we spur others on, um, and we ought to love one another, even toward those who, with whom we disagree on, on secondary issues. Hey, we're still united in Christ. We can disagree about that. That can't divide us. We're bound together in Jesus, who is the head of the body. So it ought to affect the way we see one another. It also ought to affect the way that we see Christ. Jesus in relation to the church, he's, he's it. Jesus is everything to the church. He's the one who gives us spiritual life, and he is our ultimate authority, our leader and director. Um, it, it all comes from him. If the body leaves the head behind, that does not go well. Uh, I mean, I've not seen it personally, but I, could, I can extrapolate some details. It's going to be ugly. Right? We can't leave Christ behind. He is our head, and in him we have our life as the church. And not just the local church. Um, we need to see our family that way, but we also need to see the, the universal church that way. And understand that this is, this is true, and, and though we may be across oceans, those bonds remain. Those ties are still connected across to, the, to the, the believers gathered on the plains of Africa, on the, in the jungles of South America, in the sands of the Middle East. The whole church is united together under one head. Now, as cool as that is, and I hope we are worshiping as we think these things through, that it's driving us to see the, the exalted Christ, um, you might be tempted to think it's actually a little bit disappointing, if we're honest. It's kind of a letdown. Like after last week, we looked at the, the glorious reality that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That, that he is God in the flesh. And, and we looked at this mind-blowing reality that he is the firstborn, the authority over all of creation, every last thing. It was created by him. It was created for him. And, and I think as mind-blowing as anything, from the far reaches of unknown galaxies down to the intricacies of our cells, he's over every detail. It all holds together in him. And now for this third and final statement, you'd expect Paul to be kind of ramping this up. And, and he says he's the head of the church. Like just the church. 
That's it? How do we get from all of creation to now just this, this small subset of humanity, this religious sect? Well, Paul helps us understand the true significance of what he's saying. He tells us two things. He tells us what it means and where it's going. What it means and where it's going. So first, what does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? What's the significance of that? What does it mean? And the answer is, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's, that's at the end of, of verse 18. So Paul writes, he is the head of the church, sorry, head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Well, he begins the statement back in verse 15, talking about Jesus as the beginning. You see that here in verse 18? He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. He's picking up on this theme that's been repeated. Uh, first in verse 15, he's the, he's the firstborn of creation. Then in verse 17, um, he is before all things. And then here once again, Paul says, uh, he is the beginning. And again, this is more than just, just that he was first. This is a title. This is a, a position of honor and authority. Um, the word there is arche in the Greek. And, and it's from this word that we get words like archangel. What is an archangel? He's not just an ordinary lower angel. He's an, he's an archangel. He's a beginning angel. Or my arch enemy, right? Superheroes have all kinds of little enemies, and then they have their arch en- enemy, the big enemy. Um, this is uh, uh, something is archaic. It's, it's first. It's the same word there. Um, and so it does mean number one. It, it does mean first. But the implication is first in importance. Jesus is number one. Number one because he is the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus is number one um, because of the resurrection. Jesus is firstborn because of the resurrection. He died. And he was the first to, to die and to rise again to life. Now you might ask, that's not quite right, is it? What, what about Elijah? He, he, rose a, he rose a couple people from the dead. What about Jairus' daughter that Jesus raised? What about Lazarus? There are a number of people who raised from the dead before Jesus, right? So is Jesus even the first in that? Well, let's be precise. Those people were not truly resurrected. Maybe we could say they're resuscitated. Um, And and by that, I do not mean that they were not uh, truly dead. They they were absolutely dead. And and in fact, uh, you look at Lazarus, he was in the grave for four days. And in the memorable words of the King James, uh, he stinketh. It's not good. (laughs) They were fully dead. And they were brought back to life but where are they now? Like, where is Lazarus? Well, he died again. It was temporary. He wasn't resurrected. He was resuscitated. He was brought back from the dead, which is a pretty impressive miracle. But he did eventually die again. 
They're not still with us. Jesus is different. Jesus is very different. Jesus didn't just put death off. He beat it. He beat it. He conquered death. He overcame that great enemy. And the concept of overcoming death, of being the firstborn on the other side of death, is massively significant. What is death? Where does death come from? I mean, it's all around us now. Everyone dies. We, we, we take it for granted. But, but death is not native to this world. Death is not an original feature of creation. It is, it is an intruder into this world. Death as a direct consequence. Kids, can somebody fill that in without me saying it? Direct consequence of what? Sin. Oh, Mr. Matt was ahead of me. Somebody can read. Good job. You guys knew that, though. Death is the consequence of sin. It's the pinnacle of what we call the curse, right? Adam and Eve first sinned. They rebelled against God. They chose to go their own way rather than trusting and loving him. And, and they brought themselves and all of their children who would follow. Any, anyone here a descendant of Adam? Yeah, yeah. That's humanity. They brought themselves and all of their family out from under the blessing of God, that perfect joy and peace and life that exists there in the favor of God, and into the curse of God. The death, the suffering, the pain that comes as God's righteous judgment of sin and even just as the natural consequence of living in this world in opposition to God. It breaks down. It doesn't go well. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what, that's what we earn for dishonoring and disobeying the Lord. That's what death is. And so Jesus conquering death, rising again from the grave, not just temporarily, but as a resurrection. It's not just a miracle. He's not just flexing. He's, he's not just showing off. The meaning is so much deeper than that. On the cross, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, took on himself the curse of sin. The curse that he did not himself deserve. And he came out the other side. And on the other side of death, then, he is the beginning of something new. A new life. A new reality has come into existence. His resurrection, in his resurrection, Jesus is the first in a new creation. A new creation. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, they, they speak of Jesus as the second Adam or the last Adam. He's a new human race. He's, he's starting over on the other side of the curse, on the other side of death. Listen to these beautiful words from the, the story of the resurrection in Luke. Um, I love this passage. These are some of my, my favorite verses uh, in the book of, or favorite words in the book of Luke. Um, chapter 23 tells of the crucifixion, the false accusations, the beatings, the mocking, Jesus being nailed to the cross, darkness covering the land, Jesus breathing his last. 
It ends with the body of Jesus being placed lifeless in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then there's this somber silence. The next day is the Sabbath. Nothing moves. And Luke 24 opens with these glorious words. But, but, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. We know what's coming. But think about why Luke lays it out that that way. The first day out of seven, as light is first breaking forth into darkness, he's pointing back. He's pointing back to Genesis 1. He's saying, this is it. on, On day one out of seven, as light is beginning to break forth, Jesus, in his resurrection from the grave, is the first, is the the beginning, breaking through of an entirely new creation. It's glorious. A creation out from under the curse. A creation back to the the favor and the blessing of God. And, And wonders of wonders that we could never predict, that we could never presume upon. He's not just starting fresh. He doesn't just wipe out that old wicked creation as he would have been absolutely just to do. No, he rescues rebels. The very rebels who destroyed that first creation out from that broken, corrupted world of death and pain and brokenness and bringing them into new life. It's mind-blowing. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 20 to 22 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mean, he, he means died. And the, he, Jesus is the first fruits. Right? So when your crop just begins to blossom, the, the first apples on the tree begin to ripen, and, and you know the rest are going to come soon. The rest are going to follow suit. The first fruit is just that, that very point, the representative of the rest to come. So Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. Listen to this. For by a man came death. That's Adam. By a man came death into this world. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So everyone who is in Adam, we already established, that's all of us, um, is subject to death. We're we're born into this rebellious people who are cursed uh, under the curse of sin, and we will face death because of it. But all of those who are in Christ, everyone who's part of that new humanity in him will be raised to life. In Jesus, we are brought into this new creation. He is the firstborn, but Romans 8, 29 tells us he is the firstborn among many brethren. Praise the Lord. And not just someday either. We're not just looking forward here. Paul's still in the present tense. If you are in Christ, you are part of this new creation now, right now. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, that's that's a word of glory, look, see, worship. 
the new has come. If you're a believer, if you've turned your back on that old creation, that old cursed life of seeing and serving self, if you've trusted in Jesus, put your hope in him, then you are part of that new creation. As Paul just said back in verse 13, as, as Josh referenced earlier, as we sang, he has, he has delivered us out from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've switched. And we're the first creation, that first human race was led by Adam, who was frail and flawed, who sinned and brought death and the curse. This new creation, the new humanity, humanity 2.0, is led by Christ. He is our head. He's our representative before the Lord. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So think about that. If you're in Christ, you are alive in the new creation here and now. Even in the middle of this cursed, broken world, plagued by sin and death with struggle and toil and suffering all around us, that's where we live physically. But we are at the same time alive in that new creation. Rescued out from under the power of the curse. As part of this this reset, this fresh, clean, new beginning. That's where we live. And so we have this mixed reality. Do you see it? Do you feel the, the tension there? We still live in a world of sickness and pain and death. It's all around us. There is sorrow and toil. And we will ultimately face physical death. If the Lord does not return, um, that's what lies in store for us. Not, we're not out of that yet, but, but something has drastically changed, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 57 says this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we will experience physical death, but not the curse of death. Not death the way it used to be. Not the eternal suffering and and judgment that death once held. Death was once our greatest enemy. And it ushered us into the wrath of God. But now it has been made our servant. It frees us out from this broken world. It ushers us into the presence of of His glory. Knowing that because Jesus was resurrected, so too all who hope in Him will also be resurrected to this new eternal life. That's what it means that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead. that, that, That He is the beginning of this new creation. And that as we trust in him, we too enter into that new creation. And even now we are alive in him. And because he has been raised, we too will be raised. What a glorious truth. Oh, as we walk through this weary, broken world, as we face frustrations and trials, as we're forced to meet in groups of 15, um, rather than the body together as we would so desire, um, let's hang our hat on that. 
This isn't the end. This isn't where my life exists. This isn't my hope. I've got a better city. I'm not a citizen here. I'm just passing through. I'm alive in Christ. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. We ought to have great hope and optimism through all of the chaos. So that's, that's what this is. That's what it means that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And the second question, where's this going? Where's this going? And, and the answer is that Jesus will be preeminent. Sorry, kids, there's just no smaller word there. We've got to use the Bible's word here. Jesus will be preeminent. Look with me again. I'm going to read verse 18 right down to the bottom, and we'll pack this all together. Um, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for, and he tells us why, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here's that shift that I mentioned. Verse 15, um, he's talking past tense. All things were created by him. As he moves into verses 17 and, and 18, he, he moves into the present tense. In Jesus, all things are holding together here and, and now. And, and he's the head of the body, the church today. Verse 18 begins to look forward. So that... In everything, he might be preeminent. Now, might there, the way Paul uses it, that's not a maybe. That's just that it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's still coming. It's the, it's the result. So that in everything, he will be preeminent. And Paul uses kind of intentionally redundant language here, right? Preeminent over everything. Um, preeminent means over everything. That's what it means. It means prime, first, chief, most important, highest honor. And in case you were wondering, maybe just preeminent over a few things. No, it's preeminent over all things. Highest honor. And, and that's where this is going. That's where our world is going. That Jesus will be preeminent over every single thing. What a glorious day that will be. But we ought to ask questions as we read. We ought to look at this text and ask why, Paul? How do you get there? What does Jesus, being firstborn from the dead and, and head over the church, how does that make him preeminent over everything? How do you make that jump? How do you come to that conclusion from the church to everything? Well, he shows his work. He, he gives us the reason. And this is what I'm talking about. This is the picture on the box. This is where everything is, is going. This is the, the finished, completed product. Verse 19 says that Jesus will be preeminent in everything. Verse 19, 4, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. What does that mean? Well, in, in, in Jesus... All the fullness of God, all the fullness is pleased to dwell. He's, he's kind of reaching back to verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God himself in, in human form, not part God, not just a slice of God. It's all of the fullness of God. 
And then through Jesus, God will reconcile to himself everything. That's how we get to preeminent over all things, because everything will be reconciled to God, to Christ, through him. Right now, it's just the church. Right, right, right now, it's, it's small. It's, it's individual people snatched up out of the kingdom of darkness and rescued into the, the new creation, into the kingdom of light. But there's a plan ahead. There's a big plan ahead. Jesus will not just rescue people out from under the curse. He will rescue the whole earth out from under the curse. All of it. All things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, when you read heaven there, he's not talking about like God's dwelling heaven. Um, He's talking about the heavens, the sky, the, the, I think this, this physical world. And we'll see that a little bit later. I'll show you that in in Second uh, Peter. Um, now, some people have used this passage here. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's wrong. Um, all things in heaven and earth, that means what we call universalism, right? That means everybody's saved. That means nobody's going to hell, right? Well, why did you think anyone's going to hell? Because Jesus says so, and countless passage after passage after passage says, if you don't repent, if you don't trust in Christ, you will be punished in in eternity in hell. It's clear throughout Scripture. And so we don't use one verse to negate a whole bunch of others. We've got to put them together. We've got to hold both of those. Um, In one sense, I think you could say um, that all people will be reconciled to Christ. Um, Think of reconciling the books. They're going to be put in their right place. Those who are rebellious sinners will be reconciled to Christ in their judgment. They will be put in their proper place with respect to who Jesus is. Um, But I don't think that's the point here. I think when Paul talks about all things, whether heaven or earth, he's just saying not just people, not just the church, but the world. That's what he's going for. That's what he's talking about. Right now, there is this this flash of light in the midst of the darkness. It's the church. It's the new creation just just breaking through ever so slightly into this broken world. It's blindingly bright like a welder's arc, but it's just tiny. Still surrounded by darkness and the curse, but one Day, one glorious day when Christ returns, that blinding flash of light will encompass all of reality. There's droplets of water right now seeping through this crack from the next world into this one. On that day, the floodgates will open and this world will be overtaken by the glory of the new creation. Not just people, but this physical world made new. We so often get confused about heaven and and eternity and what's it going to look like and wondering, am I going to be bored there? And I just got to be honest, when I was a kid, I didn't really know if I wanted to go to heaven. It looked lame. You guys have seen the pictures, like clouds and harps. I don't want to do that. I don't want to wear a white dress. What is going on there? I'm not sure. Like if that's what heaven is, I'm, I'm not sure I want in. It's not. That's not what we're looking forward to. Eternity will be this world made new. This beautiful, physical, tangible world gloriously restored. 
brought back to the way it was meant to be, brought back to, to as it was before sin and so much greater. That's what we're looking forward to. Romans 8, 20 to 22 talks about the world and, and kind of the state that it's in right now. Listen to this. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so, so the world, because of sin, has been subjected. It's been put into bondage to, to corruption and, and, and struggling and death and, and toil in hope that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is looking forward to when it gets to enjoy what we get to enjoy as the children of God, when it gets redeemed. And Paul says, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together as in pains of childbirth until now. Creation is waiting for that day. 2 Peter 3, 12 to 13 says that we are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there again, we see the the heavens, talking about the sky, um, the heavenly bodies, that's the, the sun, the moon, the stars. God is going to purify this world with fire. He's using the imagery of of gold that is purified and the the dross, the impurities, the gross stuff, it all burns out. And what's left is pure and perfect. That's what this new creation will be like. Um, Isaiah talks about uh, the new heavens and the new earth a few times. Uh, Isaiah 11, um, 6 to 9 is, is a beautiful passage, a little too long for the screen. You'll just have to listen carefully. Isaiah 11, uh, verses 6 to 9, listen, the wolf shall Dwell with the lamb. The leopard lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. This perfect, peaceful, restored creation. Back to the Garden of Eden and so much better. And notice, it's not just the lack of the curse. Right? It's not just the end of sin, the end of all of the things that, that hurt us and, and frustrates us. Paul uses two words there um, in, in verses 19 and 20. And, and I think he puts these two phrases side by side on purpose. And the words are dwell and reconcile. Do you see them? In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that's what they lost. They lost the presence of God dwelling with them, and they lost their relationship with God. It was broken. 
Years later, as the Lord is working out this rescue plan and he's, he's pointing forward, he's, he's promising them what that, what that rescue is going to look like, he gives through Moses this precious gift of the tabernacle. Exodus 25.8, the Lord says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? Why the tabernacle? That I may dwell in their midst. That I may be with them. God would again be with his people. Now in the tabernacle, I mean a very imperfect and impersonal way, but with them, with them nonetheless. And the tabernacle is filled with just layer upon layer of the the promises of reconciliation, of God restoring that relationship. The altar where the sacrifice was killed in the place of the sinner. The wash basin where they would come and be made clean before the Lord. The table inside that's, that's set with, with bread and wine. And there are 12 loaves. God's saying there's enough for everyone. Come and dine at my table again. Come and have fellowship with me over dinner. But most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant where they would take the blood of the sacrifice and they would sprinkle it on what was called the atonement cover. Inside the ark is the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Above the ark is where the presence of God would dwell. That was spatially exactly where he said he would be between the cherubim above the ark of the covenant. And in between the law that condemns us and the holiness of God, they were to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. And God was saying, I will cover your sin. When I look at you, at the, when I see the law, I will see the sacrifice in between. I will make reconciliation. And so the, the tabernacle promises the dwelling of God and the reconciliation of God. And then when Jesus comes, he begins to fulfill it. He begins to make these promises real. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It dwelt among us. In the presence of the coming of Jesus, the the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in the death of Jesus, that promise of reconciliation becomes reality. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The price paid completely to, to cover our sin once and for all. And yet, it's still so lacking, isn't it? Don't you feel it? It's not done yet. It's not what it should be. Not yet. There's still so much that that waits. There's so much fullness still ahead of us. There will be a future day. A future day of God fully dwelling with us and fully reconciling us to himself. It's coming. Listen to Revelation 21. 1 to 3. Man, I I know we hit this passage um, Not long ago, but it's worth looking at again. And watch, watch for the language of dwelling and reconciliation. Then I saw the new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea for them was an image of of chaos and death, and it was dangerous. God's saying, "There's, there's no more chaos in this new creation. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's some relational language. That's pretty strong. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold the dwelling 
The dwelling place of God is with man. I'm coming down. I'm coming to be with you. He will dwell with them. Listen to this. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's reconciliation. It's restored relationship and the presence of God. The old creation, broken and cursed, done away with purified and made new, and the new heavens and the new earth, a new world for us to enjoy without sin, without toil, without weariness or exhaustion, and yet not totally different from this world. A physical world with with jobs to do, jobs without toil, jobs without frustration, relationships without stress and drama, a new world without suffering or death. but infinitely greater with the Lord himself dwelling in our midst and with restored relationship to him. And over that all-encompassing new creation, the old is pushed out and the new comes in and Jesus will be supreme. He's over all of it. Why is Christ as the head of the church? I mean, he's preeminent over everything because the church as part of that new creation is going to take over everything. Listen, Revelation 3.20, Jesus is still calling. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I will dwell with him. And eat with him and he with me. Reconciliation. He offers. Come. Leave behind that broken, wrecked, sinful, painful world. And enter into this new creation where the dwelling of God and reconciliation with God are offered. And he can do that. He can do all of this through Jesus Christ. Making Peace by the blood of his cross. Our sin had to be dealt with. The brokenness of this world had to be dealt with. And it was on the cross of Jesus Christ. So that in all things, in heaven and on earth, beginning with the church and then blossoming into this glorious new creation, lasting until endless millennia of eternity, Jesus Christ might be preeminent. Josh and the worship team, why don't you guys join me up here as we prepare to celebrate that reality with communion. And, and communion is right there, isn't it? It's right in that overlapping space. We proclaim as we eat and drink that we're united with Christ. We have fellowship with him and that, it, that it's by his death, by his body broken for me that we have that fellowship, that reconciliation. And it has this sense of waiting for the fullness, this sense of longing. Jesus told his disciples right before he handed out the elements, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink of it with you in my Father's kingdom. He's looking forward. He's waiting for that great day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will finally have the the fullness of life, the fullness of his presence together, the fullness of reconciliation. And so uh, as we partake, we declare, I'm there and I'm not yet.
I have this glorious salvation in Christ and I am looking forward to what is in store.